Hello and welcome to Talk Bookish to Me, the podcast where readers gather to talk about books, share recommendations, and chase that five-star feeling. I'm your host, Gwen, and today I'm joined by Lena to discuss The Lost Summers of Newport by Beatrice Williams, Lauren Willig, and Karen White, also known as Team W, which is so much better because I don't even know if I say all their names right, so sorry if I didn't. Keep in mind this episode is best listened to after you've read the novel yourself. However, the first bit will be spoiler-free. Hi, my name is Lena. My YouTube channel is Lena's Bookshelf, and that's also my Instagram handle. I read mostly thrillers and some 20th century historical fiction, but I also enjoy memoirs, psychology, nonfiction, things like that, with a bit of romance and horror thrown in there. Talk Bookish to Me is a bi-weekly podcast, but did you know if you join my Patreon community, you gain instant access to bonus episodes? For the cost of a Starbucks, you can join a group of listeners and readers who love books as much as you do. We have monthly events and a book club. To discover all the perks available, click the link in the show notes. The Lost Summers of Newport is a novel of money and secrets set among the famous summer mansions of Newport, Rhode Island, spanning over a century from the Gilded Age to the present day. When I was planning for this season of the podcast, I knew I wanted to focus on backlist books that might be more readily available for listeners to get their hands on. I also wanted the books to align with the Talk Bookish to Me 12-month reading challenge. Check out the challenge on Instagram or on the story graph linked in the show notes. June's prompt is to read a book with a destination in the title, so I chose this one. Okay, so The Lost Summers of Newport is co-written by three separate authors. Beatrice Williams, Lauren Willig, and Karen White. So first, Beatrice Williams is the best-selling author of 13 novels, including Her Last Flight, The Summer Wives, The Golden Hour, as well as All the Ways We Say Goodbye, which is also co-written with Lauren and Karen. She's a native of Seattle and graduated from Stanford University, where she earned an MBA in finance from Columbia. She lives with her husband and four children near the Connecticut shore where she divides time between writing and laundry, which I imagine would take up a lot of time with that many people. Yeah. Lauren Willig is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author. She's written 20 novels, including The Summer Country, The Ashford Affair, and The English Wife. She lives in New York City with her husband and family. And last, we have Karen White. She is also a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 25 novels. Wow, so many, including Dreams of Falling and The Night the Lights Went Out. She has two grown children and currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband and two spoiled Havanese dogs, which makes me want to be her best friend because I too have owned a Havanese dog. So I want to be best friends with Karen and her dogs. (laughs) I love that. So have you read anything else by these authors? And based on your experience with The Lost Summers of Newport, are you interested in seeking out other books by any of them? So I've only read a book by Beatrice Williams, and that was 100 Summers, Um, but it's also blurbed by Karen White. But I haven't read anything from the other two, but I would be willing to pick up some of their co-written books or some of their independently published books. Um, I didn't realize until looking into them that they've co-written four books together. I assumed that this was the first one, but they have multiple. Yeah, it's crazy how many books they've written alone and then together. I'm like, they're writing machines out here. Um, The only... Other book I've read is The Night the Lights Went Out by Karen White. So that one was about a young single mother who discovers that the nature of friendship is never what it seems. I'm still trying to figure out what I like in my historical fiction novel. So I can't say I'm like running to the bookstore or anything, but I'm definitely open to reading other books by the trio specifically. Um, as you said, they have a few other books they've co-written, including The Forgotten Room, The Glassed Ocean, and All the Ways We Said Goodbye. 
So who would you recommend this book to, The Lost Summers of Newport? And are there any other books you can compare it to? So first of all, if you share a love of Rhode Island, as I do, I think you'll really enjoy this. The atmosphere of the shore and the yacht clubs and the breathtaking mansions were almost their own characters in the book. So if you're from New England or just fell in love with Rhode Island and specifically Newport, this is 100% the book for you. Also, if you enjoy multiple timelines in your historical fiction, this would be a fun challenge because it has three timelines. As far as a book to compare it to, I think the first thing that comes to mind is Big Lies in a Small Town by Diane Chamberlain. It's dual timeline with a little bit of mystery elements as well, a lot of discussion on class, socioeconomic status. So it has some similar elements to The Lost Summers of Newport, but the actual plot itself is really different. The other book that I thought of was The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is a classic. They both deal with the dark side of glitz and glamour that comes with wealth. Oh, that was a really good recommendation. I totally see that as a good recommendation. Um, so like you said, I'd say if you're looking for multiple timeline historical fictions, mainly about family secrets, there's quite a few characters and how they're all connected is not readily apparent. So someone who is patient as things are revealed might enjoy this. I also liked the HGTV reno aspect to the story, um, even though it was definitely not the focus of the story. So if you like historical fiction and you enjoy HGTV, maybe this could scratch that itch for you. <laughs> Were there any characters you specifically liked or disliked? Definitely. So uh, first of all, in the 1899 timeline, I liked Ellen's character, who is the music teacher. And that timeline mainly focuses on Ellen and her perspective. She's crafty and smart, but she doesn't feel like a con artist. Um, and while she did have her own agenda, she had a lot of character and morals as well. While I didn't love her character arc, uh, we'll get more into that later. <laughs> she was definitely a memorable character. I also really liked Lucky in both timelines where we encountered her, both as a younger woman and uh, older. She's a spicy little Italian and has such a good heart at her core. And so I really liked that about her. Now, someone that I disliked was Prunella. Actually, both of them. <laughs> there was two in different timelines, but they weren't the same person, right? It was two different people. I think it was two different people. Okay, it was kind of confusing because Lucky's the same person in both, but the Prunellas, I think, were different people that were just both named Prunella. <laughs> but either way, they were only worried about their standing in society and they were just ready to throw anyone under the bus to get ahead. I do wish there was more from the men in this book. I feel like the men were only used as pawns in the story. And I appreciate the main characters and main plot lines with the women, but the men were a larger part. And I think they weren't given enough credit for that. I wish we had more character development in Andy, who is the 2019 timeline. She seemed to feel like an afterthought of a character and I definitely wanted more from her. At times, she was a little bit annoying to me. Uh, I didn't like all of the decisions that she made, but overall, I wish she was utilized more. I wish there was a twist where she was somehow related to someone in the story. I felt like that would have been fun, and I kept waiting for that, but it didn't happen. Yeah, or I wish that it almost like her chapters would have been bigger because she was like the present timeline. So if her portions were 
like more in depth and the other sections were like lessened you know like maybe it would have felt like Andy was the main character and they were side characters and she was discovering like what have happened I don't know that would have been interesting so even though yeah. she wasn't in the novel a ton I felt a kinship towards Joni especially in the latter parts of the story I did also enjoy reading from the perspectives of all three of the main characters of their timeline so Andy Ellen and Lucky I also felt a little bit for um, Maybelle and her situation with her horrible brother, John. I just wanted to stab him in the eye. But <laughs> one character that rubbed me even more wrong and purposefully, of course, was Stu. Um, or it's like Sty or his name yeah. is said like so different than it's spelled. Yeah, but... I thought it was like Stu or maybe Stewie. Or something like that. But then the audiobook, she definitely says sty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I, to me, it still looks like Stu, but I will go with sty. Okay. I wanted hit to stab him from the moment that I met him on the page. You could just tell the way that he was introduced that you were not supposed to like the guy, though. Um, he's a cheater, an alcoholic who gaslights the women in his life. Yeah. No thanks, douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard of or visited Newport, Rhode Island before reading the book? And why do you think the authors chose it as a setting for this novel? I actually have been to Rhode Island. I went there late summertime about two years ago. And before going there, I had no idea of the history and beauty that is in such a tiny little state. But I spent the weeks leading up to my work trip there Googling and trying to figure out how I could see the best parts of Newport in one afternoon. So I visited the Breakers Mansion, which is mentioned in the book. And I saw the church where JFK and Jackie Kennedy were married. I walked along the yacht-filled harbor. I ate seafood that was literally caught that morning. They were able to point and say, over there, see that boat? That caught this fish this morning, which was really cool. It was just a magical place. And you can tell that the people who live there really care about their history and the architecture and the buildings. I'm really glad that that was shown throughout this book as well. So if you ever get the chance to visit Newport, I highly recommend it. Also, please take me with you. And I assume that the authors wanted to write what was familiar to them as they've all lived on the East Coast for at least part of their lives. So um, I also see why they chose this setting because, like I said before, Newport itself was a character in the book. I have obviously heard of it, but I've never been, but I would love to. Um, as to why the authors chose the setting, I would wager because it's known for its stunning Gilded Age mansions that were once home to famous families like the Vanderbilts and the Kennedys and the Astors. So maybe the location spoke for itself and they didn't need to build up the location. It's kind of like people already know this place. So if we say that, they already have like a visual in their head. So... I thought that That's was a great point. Cool. Uh, okay. So as we mentioned earlier, or we alluded to earlier, there were three timelines, 2019, 1899, and 1957. Was there a particular timeline or story you were more drawn to? So this was a fun challenge for me because I've never read a book with three timelines before. And honestly, I was a little bit nervous <laughs> because usually when I read dual timeline, one timeline takes over. And... I actually can honestly say that I loved all of the timelines in this. They were interwoven really well and at the right time. I didn't feel like things were overdone. You know, sometimes you'll have two different timelines, but they kind of 
are the same thing, just in different times. And you're like, wait a second, didn't I already read this scene? <laughs> but I felt like the stories flowed really well. And I liked how I would have these epiphanies while reading. Something would be very casually slipped into one timeline that seemed kind of inconspicuous. And then later on, you'd be in another timeline and think, oh my gosh, now I understand this thing from back here in this timeline and how it relates to this timeline now. So that was really cool how they were able to weave those together, especially if each person was writing a different timeline, which I'm assuming that's how they did. I don't, you know, I don't really know, but that is a really cool thing to be able to do, to write three different timelines and still have them so interwoven with the different details. Yeah, like you, and one thing about me is regardless of what genre I'm reading, whether it be historical fiction, a thriller, a romance, it literally doesn't matter. I'm usually drawn to one timeline or the other, and I find myself frustrated or bored or just uninterested in one of the timelines. Um, I'll find myself speeding through one section to get to the next section. However, in this book, The Lost Summers of Newport, I really enjoyed all the timelines. I think each individual timeline had a captivating storyline that held my interest. Like I said earlier, I enjoyed reading from the perspectives of all three of the main characters and their timeline. So possibly for the first time, definitely <laughs> for the first time in a historical fiction, I liked all three equally, which, wow. And I also said time, like seven times. Okay, make that nine. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so for the pacing and the plot, let's go ahead and jump into that a little bit. Okay, so the pacing was quicker than I expected. A lot of times in historical fiction, the pacing is, you know, average, maybe a little slow at times. I think I expected a slower pace with a lot of detail into the high society. And I expected a little bit more of the people behaving badly trope, which I'm not mad that there wasn't as much of that, because honestly, I'm not a huge fan of that trope. And it just went so much deeper than just behaving badly or this is my stance in society. I appreciated that there was plot focus as well as character focus. As far as the plot, it's definitely something you need to focus on to stay in the know. I almost took this book with me on my beach vacation and I'm glad I didn't because while the summer waterfront vibes were there, I found that I really had to focus on the invisible family tree I was curating in my head while reading. And I'm not one for making character lists or family trees, but this book demanded it. Otherwise, I would have had so many gaps to fill in. I felt like I needed one of those bulletin boards with the pictures and the strings to make sense of all of the relationships, the infidelities, the ancestors. But it never felt like a chore to keep up with. It was something that I wanted to do in order to get the most out of all of the intricacies of the story. Yeah, I enjoyed the pacing for this particular story. There were a lot of moving parts, several characters to keep track of. I love fast paced stories, but that wouldn't have worked with this book. With all of the moving parts, I would have gotten confused real quick. Um, as for the plot of the story, each timeline, like I said, has its own mini plot. And then all of the pieces of each are revealed um, to form a much larger connection. 
So in 2019, we had Andy, who was a host for a reality show called Makeover Mansion, who is trying to renovate and restore three rooms in Sprague Hall. She needs the money and is caring for Petey and also living with her dad. She has an older model car and she mentioned several times about needing money to fix the heat at her house and things like that. There is also a little bit of an unexpected romance in her timeline. A few things that I think could have been left out or handled differently was her boss and mentor, Mark. I don't think we ever got the full story there and it just seemed unnecessary. Also, Petey, bless his heart, he could have been completely left out of the story in my opinion. Um, and 1899, there was lots of unexpected romance. Um, Ellen had secrets and a past she was running from. And although I wish there was a bit more clarity there, um, I'm so glad that it wasn't the focus, but rather it was about her future rather than her past. Um, and I also liked that the things happening in 1899 bled over into the 1957 timeline with Lucky and her crappy husband, Sty, and then Teddy. And then again, how things in this timeline bled into the 2019 timeline. So I like how they kind of had like a little bit of overlap. Um, but I don't think it's like readily apparent that that's what's happening. <laughs> I agree that this story calls for close attention to the details and to the characters because like I said, timelines bleed into one another and if you're not paying attention, you can miss a connection. Um, so diving into some spoilers now. In 2019, I am happy that Andy and Luke had their moment. I was, I was, I love romance. I was like, yes. Um, I think she mislabeled him from the beginning though, like based on her past. And I'm glad she like opened up and like let that go. And I'm glad that he asked Andy out on a proper date at the end of the book. Um, now the Petey thing, I'm happy he wasn't her son. Cause I was like, what is happening? And then when it was revealed, I was like, okay, but I don't think he needed to be in the story at all. All, and I was glad that it was revealed that he was her nephew, though. In the 1899 timeline, I read dark books. So I wish that Ellen's past that she was running from leaned darker, or maybe we just needed more details of what actually happened. But basically, everything is finally laid out on page 266. So Ellen's mother and sisters died of typhoid and her dad started working for a man named um, Dearmont. And she wasn't aware of the exact arrangements between them. But she later worked for Dermot herself as a pianist at his music hall. She never fully explained what he did to her, but it was implied that he was like this bad guy. And she found out about the job at Sprague Hall and jumped at the opportunity to create a new life for herself. I am happy that she ended up with the prince, but I do think it messed with her mind too much, like how that kind of deceit went down. I also don't think that John ever paid Ellen. <laughs> I mean, I guess it didn't matter in the end, but still, um, Dudley popping up in this timeline surprised me. And he was just as much of an ass as a kid as he was as an adult. So it was like, it made sense. But like, why put him in there again? Because I just hated him. Um, yeah, I just don't think he was needed in this timeline. But 
in the 1957 timeline, Lucky was quite the character and she was also dealing with a lot. Um, she knew her husband was cheating on her, but she also had feelings for her longtime friend, Teddy. So I was kind of like, that's emotional cheating. So like, I'm confused. Um, it took her a long time to act on her feelings and to agree to run away with him. Um, this timeline was used as the tie-in for the story, I felt like, um, the one we needed to have to make all of the connections. So yeah, those are just some nice little plot points there for you. Um, okay, so Andy tells the reader, my interest was all about the careful restoration of our collective past that was held in trust by old buildings. What do you think old buildings tell us about our collective past? And is that true of Sprague Hall? So I kind of felt like poor Sprague Hall was a victim of people who just wanted to look and seem expensive without actually having the money to pay for those expensive things. All the updates that were made to Sprague Hall over the years were full of shortcuts and ways to cut corners and therefore cut the price. I appreciated Andy's desire to maintain the true architectural dignity of the old buildings, despite what her reality TV producer said would sell on TV. Sprague Hall concealed lots of layers of different secrets over different years. And I think that Lucky was allowing the taping of the Restoration Show as a deliberate way to bring some of those secrets to the surface without actually pointing fingers at herself. I think she was just tired of secrets and wanted it to be revealed, but didn't really know how because she would just get in trouble. Yeah, that's a good point. So places are key triggers for both individual memory, such as very personal memories and collective memory, the memory shared by the larger society. So old buildings can talk. Eventually restoration needs to happen, whether it be in small repairs or grander renovations and updating. And this question reminded me of when I was a child, my parents were updating our kitchen and they broke through the wall that connected the kitchen and the bathroom. Room. I don't know if they were placing sheetrock. I don't know what they were doing. But all of these single blade razors came spilling out of the wall. So in the back of medicine cabinets back in the day, there was a slot to dispose of used like shaving razors, not the disposable razors we think of now, but like the super sharp safety razor blades um, that were inserted into like a razor handle. And I never knew this was a thing that people would just like why not throw it away? Like, but no, they just used to throw it in the back of their medicine cabinet. Like there was a little slot. So it was like a hidden mini museum in the walls that I never knew existed. Um, and Sprague Hall held its own secrets. Only instead of razor blades or Coke bottles, it had a couple of dead bodies hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, we also found Coke bottles. So that was really cool because they were like the glass ones, like when they built the house, you know, I guess whoever was building the house, like drank it and just stuck it in the wall and put sheetrock over it. And then forgot about it. Oh yeah. my goodness. I guess the razor blades probably had something to do with like, I don't know, I guess like a sharps container like we would have now. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But then like, how do you get them all out of there and really dispose of them? And I'm thinking like the wall is only so big because, you know, they have the studs in there, like the wall. So it only filled up like the one thing of it. And I'm like, over years and years of people doing this, how many times are you shaving? How many razors are you sticking in there? What did they think was going to happen? So right. yeah, that what happens was... when it's full. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what did you make of Sty Sprague and his marriage to Lucky? What do you think she meant when she said at the end that Sty deserved better? 
Um, I'm not really sure what she meant <laughs> because I'm not really sure I agree with that statement. Um, Stein definitely lived a privileged life, but in exchange for a horrible father who only ever taught him to act like a jerk to get what he wanted. So as hard as it is to pity Stein, who had literally anything he wanted, I do pity the expectations and the loneliness that comes with wealth. He had his own, well, it was partly of his own doing, but partly of his father's doing. He had his, his own stuff going on. Also, what kind of a nickname is Sty? I just I really just, can't get past that. The Sty in the eye. think of a Sty on your eye. <laughs> I yes. know. That's why I was like, is she literally saying Sty? Because it looks like stew. <laughs> but I guess that's a fitting name for the character. <laughs> he was literally <laughs> a Sty in the eye. Oh, my goodness. So the unique thing about marriages is that looks can be deceiving. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors unless you're in the relationship you never truly know. With books, we get to see the nitty gritty, the behind the scenes, the dirt happening. Thinking back, I don't think anyone ever expressed or talked about how horrible Sty was. Lucky knew. Teddy knew because Lucky told him, and the various women he was sleeping with knew, of course, but the general public that showed up to these exclusive parties at Sprague Hall didn't seem to know, or at least they turned a blind eye to it. People knew he was an alcoholic or drank to excess, but still no one did anything about that either. Yes, maybe a bit can be explained away about it being a product of the times and such, but still, um, Lucky stayed with a man who was openly cheating on her. She loved Teddy, but she still stayed. My only guess as to what she meant when she said Stu deserved better was in reference to his father, his alcoholic addict and possibly just Lucky wanting the best for all people in general. She seemed like one of those people. So I think that was just like her spirit. I don't know. But I agree. Like, I don't agree with her sentiment. So Ellen thinks to herself, she'd no call to be feeling sorry for an heiress as long as her salary was paid. Did you feel sorry for Maybell? What's her role in the story? And what kind of different ending would you have written for her? So I did feel sorry for Maybelle because it seemed like everyone around her was just trying to dumb her down so they could take advantage of her. Her brother made sure she didn't know of her rights or her wealth so that he could just control them. And like you said earlier, I don't think he ever paid Ellen because I don't think he had any control over Maybelle's money at that point. I think he needed her married off to secure all of that. Um, Prunella wanted to sabotage Maybelle's relationship with the prince so she could marry her brother, and she was willing to ruin Ellen's reputation in the meantime. And so it made it very clear that she didn't think of the employees of the house as actual people, which just is horrible. As for a different ending, I don't know. I didn't really want Maybelle to marry the prince, but I also didn't really want her to marry the other guy either. I just wanted her to dance off into the sunset with her romance novels and live her best life. Girl, you don't need no man. <laughs> exactly. I agree. I definitely felt sorry for Maybelle. She clearly didn't want to marry the prince, um, yet she had no say in the matter, it felt like. She was surrounded by men who dictated her life day to day. Other than Ellen and the other help, she didn't have anyone to really look up to or to guide her. The extended family was just as horrible, so she must have been a very lonely young woman. 
Um, due to the constraints of being a woman during the time period, she didn't have many options either. Um, even though she's an heiress, her duty was to marry well, and it was clear her stepbrother did not have her best interests in mind. I believe her life mirrored Ellen's in a way. They were both trying to escape their present life and start fresh. And even though I don't believe Pratt was a good man for her, she felt that he would have been able to give her that fresh start in life that she craved. So I wish that for her. So now we have Prince Sebastiano, <laughs> who encourages Ellen to make Mabel's place saying, honor her with your living, live the life she might have led. Is that what Ellen does? Would you have been persuaded by that argument? Honestly, I didn't love this part in the book. I understand that in that time, women needed status and a good marriage match to survive. But Ellen never wanted fame or fortune. She just wanted to escape a shady past. And it seemed like all of her hesitation and anxiety over taking Maybelle's place probably should have been a red flag. If you're this upset about it, maybe you shouldn't do it. I don't think she went with her gut. I think she was just thinking about how trapped she was in society. So while I empathize with her, I really don't know what Ellen saw in the prince either. Yeah, I can't say if the argument would have persuaded me or not. Like, I'm not in that situation, so I don't know. I don't think Ellen had a difficult time running away with the prince or marrying him. She clearly had feelings for him. I think she had an issue with not reporting what happened to Maybelle. Um... You know, Ellen wanted to give her a proper burial. Obviously, she does go on to marry the prince and have a happy life, but I don't think that the guilt ever left her. So Jackie Kennedy tells Lucky, all these palaces had a perfect moment in history, and then the hour was past. I don't know if you ever get such a thing back once it's gone. Do you agree with her? What do you think the next phase of Sprague's history will be like once Lucky sells it? So I definitely think that Sprague Hall deserves a second chance to have happy memories, to have happy marriages, maybe a little bit less murder. <laughs> I don't think that the house's story has, has totally been told. I think there's more to tell, especially once Andy and Lucky team up, they can restore the mansion and give it more dignity and refinement like Andy was trying to do all along. And so I think that Sprague Hall can definitely have its new moment in history kind of like buying a new car when you get a new car it has that certain new car smell but slowly over time that goes away same thing with houses mansions palaces um, there are things that we live in they cannot remain perfect if you kept your house in immaculate like the building materials itself would slowly deteriorate and as we saw that with spray call so i hope that once lucky sells the mansion it is restored and that the memories made within its walls are good ones so final thoughts what could have made it better or you know what did you think is there anything else you wanted to touch on yeah i definitely think that this book made me work like i said a lot of brain power sometimes you know i really had to work to keep all the people straight it was very multifaceted that being said i think i was still left wanting more i wish i got more about andy honestly i would read a whole book about andy and her mansion renovation with lucky that part fascinated me like give me that sequel please <laughs> i felt like there were some throwaway characters that could have been easily deleted i think you mentioned some earlier and it really wouldn't have changed the story at all for me i felt like hadley dudley and mark all were just kind of throwaway characters 
I also wasn't really buying the romance between Andy and Luke. Something about it felt really off, but I think that's because for some reason in my head, I picture Luke as a creepy middle-aged man. And I'm not sure why my brain made him look like that, but I just can't unsee it. And so it just, it just didn't work for me. <laughs> and then the, the other thing was having multiple characters with the same name. It just threw me off sometimes. Yeah, even when characters have like a main name and then they have a nickname, but then sometimes they use the nickname and then sometimes they use the name. It's like, okay, which name are we going with here? Um, right, or like the two Prunellas. You could yeah. have had one be Prunella and one be Prue. You know, like you could have had a little bit of something different to where you knew, okay, these two people are related, but they're not the same person. Yeah. So like you, I needed a little bit more because I was left with some lingering questions that I didn't feel were addressed in the book. For example, in Andy's parts, Mark was clearly a drunk who was battling his own issues. It was implied that he had problems, but we never found out what those problems were. And if they weren't relevant to the story, like why bring them up and not address them? Um, I also think that Mark could have been written off altogether and more time spent on developing Andy and Luke. Then maybe you would have liked that romance a little bit better if they spent more time on that. And also like, how did Dudley find out about the big secret and then just sit on it for all of those years? That was bizarre. And lastly, a family tree would have been so nice. And I realized like why it wasn't in there. Cause like, you don't really find out the connections of the characters until like the end. And then you're like, oh, you know, but it, it would have spoiled things early on, but maybe having it at the end would have been nice. But then I'm like, for the people that are flipping through the book and then they see it at the end, they might glance at it. So like, I get it, but like I wanted it <laughs> or even have it like on their website or something would have been cool. All right. So what's your final rating and how did you enjoy the book overall? Overall, I enjoyed the book, the storylines, the reveals, the scandals, but as I've said multiple times, it took a lot of my brain power. And I feel like I'm a relatively smart person. And I still felt like I would have to take a break from reading. <laughs> uh, life is complicated enough. And I read to escape and to give my brain a break. So <laughs> all that to say, I still really did enjoy it. Um, I didn't give it five stars because I just wasn't getting those feelings and like some of the things we talked about. But um I also don't think I would recommend this to someone who's just starting out in historical fiction. This is definitely more for somebody who is more experienced in historical fiction, knows kind of how they feel about different timelines and is able to follow the timelines. But overall, I'm giving it four stars. So honestly, I am shocked at how easy this book was for me, for me to read and retain the information. Even with all of the characters and the crossover timelines, I was never bored because I felt like I was constantly piecing things together. Um, I do see its faults. You know, I've mentioned several of them. I've seen reviews from other readers who DNF'd it. So it's definitely not for everyone. And I think that's totally valid. But I really enjoyed it. And I'm going to rate The Lost Summers of Newport four stars. <laughs> I'm so excited. Like, this is another book we have in common. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a running joke in our friend group how Gwen and I have opposite tastes in books. I often find myself saying, well, Gwen didn't like this book, so maybe I'll like it. But honestly, this year, that tune has been changing a little bit. We have agreed on quite a few books this year, both good and bad. Yeah, like Haven, our last book discussion, we both hated it. <laughs> 
is one we both enjoyed. So that's amazing. That wraps up our discussion of the Lost Summers of Newport. If you read the book with us, let us know your thoughts over on Instagram. The next book discussion is The Stranger Diaries by Ellie Griffiths happening in the fall. Follow me on Instagram to stay up to date on the dates for the discussion for that one. But thanks for being here, Lena having me Gwen it's been so fun to come on and discuss another book with you you always have a way of nudging me out of my reading comfort zone and even in my preferred genre you're still pulling me out of my comfort zone so thanks so much for having me and I feel like we need to plan a girl's trip to Newport now oh my goodness I am so down for that (laughs) talk focus to me is a bi-weekly podcast bringing you book discussions recommendations and literary topics galore rate and review the podcast on Apple and Spotify be sure to tag Talk Bookish Podcast in your listening selfies and stories on Instagram. The link for Patreon is in the show notes along with Lena's social media. Until next time, happy reading. 